Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Studying fish from the past to help make the modern technology of today. Now fish, even like the old coelacanth, can help us learn a lot about making smarter materials that are strong and ductile and resist huge forces. Plus, we find out about rare earth metals and what the story of 35 million year old fish can help us uncover ways to build more and more renewable energy technology. If you've played a lot of computer games or maybe a role-playing game on a tabletop, you'll be familiar with scale armor. Now, a lot of the time, this could be something like a dragon scale or something a bit more exotic. But even in the real world, not fantasy games, ancient Romans and Egyptians and other civilizations would dress their warriors in scale-based armor, providing both protection and, of course, flexibility and ease of movement. And this type of scale armor makes a lot of sense because it gives you the ability to move and bend, but still the protection of the scales. And that is an amazing trait when compared to heavy plates or thin material. And that is important for human protection, but also important for the animals which we're taking inspiration from in the first place. And there's plenty of scaled creatures across our planet. And scales on fish, as an example, can help us learn a lot about material design and not just how to make better armor, but also how to improve the design of a lot of our structures and everything from buildings to cars to you name it. Because the techniques used by fish scales are such a simple thing, not in the large collection, but as an individual scale, can be now studied in detail. And that's exactly what researchers from UC San Diego and the Lawrence Barclay National Laboratory, Barclay Lab, have been digging into. And they've recently published a paper on it in the journal Matter. The lead authors are Hao Shen Quan and Wen Yang, along the direction of key researchers such as Robert Ritchie and Mark Myers. Now, what they were studying is fish scales. And they took these fish scales to a synchrotron. And the reason why is they were trying to understand the exact mechanism that makes fish scales so great at resisting impact or pressure, you name it. And it comes down to understanding the actual structure of the scale inside of it. And that structure and how it lends itself to resisting the penetrating bite of a predator, as well as dealing with all that excess force. So to try and understand these materials to then mimic it in real life, we need to actually understand exactly what happens at the moment of impact and how all that force is transferred through the structure. And that's exactly what powerful X-ray beams like those found in Barclay Lab's Advanced Light Sources, ALS, enable you to do. By putting the sample in there and using a special technique called small angle X-ray scattering, they're able to observe an example of a fish tooth biting into a fish scale in real time and see what happens to that fish scale and resisting that impact. Maybe they don't actually have to use a real fish tooth for it, but it's an example of trying to study exactly what happens inside that scale to resist that impact, that penetrating bite of a predator. So when you look at actually the fish scale, they have two important properties. The first is that it has a hard outer shell. Now this heart outer shell is incredibly important because it stops a predator's teeth sinking into the scale and penetrating through. So that outer shell resists the penetration and prevents it from breaking through. But all that force from that penetration doesn't magically disappear. It has to go somewhere. 
if you imagine pane of glass, if you tap on just an unreinforced pane of glass, well, it can easily shatter. But if you've ever moved house or tried to carry something safely, you'll know that if you pack things around it or inside, it can prevent it from breaking because there's something to reinforce and absorb a lot of that vibration or point load. And that's exactly the same thing that happens with a fish scale. The fish scales outside their hard outer shell have a soft inner layer that is tough and ductile. And the job of that inner layer is to actually absorb all that excess force to keep the scale in one piece. Now, what the researchers were studying in detail is exactly the mechanism that is used to spread out that load. Now, inside that inner soft part, that strong and ductile part is made up of collagen and some minerals that form a long fiber. These fibers are in a twisted orientation called a bligand structure. Now, when stress or force is applied to the material, these fibers all rotate in a sequence, which absorbs all that excess load. Material is called adaptive reorientation. And it's actually something that material scientists and engineers, like those at UC Berkeley, use a lot of the time to when they develop smart, responsive materials. But this is naturally what fish scales do. And by putting these and hitting them with these small angle x-rays and observing it in a synchrotron, they can watch in real time as the fibers absorb that load, rotate and move, and then snap back into position. And that is amazing to actually have first-hand evidence of actually occurring. Now, you may have heard of collagen. It's made up in human skin. But in our human skin, it's all messed up. Key researcher Richie likens it to a bowl of spaghetti, but it can unravel and align to absorb energy, which makes skin incredibly resistant to tearing. Now, the bullygarn structure in a scale of like a fish like a carp is much more organized. So it doesn't have the same resistance that human skin does, but it is very structured, which makes it a really good toughening mechanism. The other thing is that it's not a hard barrier between the hard and soft layers in the carp scale. It's got a gradient between it. Now, when you think about an actual armor, when you try to bind uh, two layers in an armor, coming back to this example, you would have some interfacing between it. And that gives you some way to make the transition softer or more gradual. And that's exactly what occurs inside the scale. The way that nature does it, instead of having all these interfaces where there's a gap between one type and another, there's a perfect gradient from hard to soft material. You couldn't engineer a better material than that. And that gives it a really good way to absorb blows, prevent them from penetrating through, and also spread the load. Now, they use this study to first look at carp scales, but then they turn to another type of scale. One found on the Arapima, an Amazonian freshwater fish, and the scales on this fish are so tough, they're actually impenetrable to piranha, as well as other species, of course. But if you can resist a piranha, you're doing pretty well. And they chose a carp as the other fish in their study, mostly because it's the closest modern relative of the ancient coelacanth fish, one of the first known fish to have scales that act as armor. So this mechanism that's used by both different species of fish has been long developed and adapted. And it's also an incredibly powerful one because it has a deformation and then a ductile period as well, which gives it a great properties that can be learnt from and applied to new materials that we make, whether that be 3D printing to make sure we could have materials with the same kind of gradual transition between material types, the way that nature has it, or by having 
these long but ordered structures in the bullygon structure to make sure that we have a way of absorbing a lot of these blows. Now, that is some great research put together that could have applications from all kinds of smart materials for clothing, for crash resistance, for cars, and a number of other different applications. So great work published in the journal Matt. Now, one of the big challenges with developing sustainable technology is actually getting your hands on a lot of specialized materials. And a lot of these specialized materials are called rare earth elements and ritrium or ray. Now, the thing is, these rare earth metals and, uh, and elements, they're used in a lot of high-end renewable tech like wind turbines, LEDs, and rechargeable batteries. So all of this great advancement in renewables relies on a few specific metals and a lot of these are rare. Now the problem is, most of the world's supply of these metals mainly comes from a few locations. It's because, you know, they're rare in the name, rare earth elements. So a lot of these come from a, only a handful of mines in China. And that makes it incredibly expensive and also difficult. And access to these elements and reliance on them is one of the things keeping the price of a lot of these renewable techs up because you just need a lot of them to make these things like wind turbines, LEDs, and rechargeable batteries widespread. So you need more rare earth elements in order to make more of these objects. And that's pretty much one of the major constraints, the supply of these rare elements. So finding a new source of these is incredibly important, not just for our supply chain management, but also for potentially impacting and reducing our carbon impact and reliance on other less friendly technologies especially when we try to tackle climate change. And recently, researchers have discovered a, a new large source of rare earth elements in yttrium. And a lot of these have been discovered off the coast of Japan, deep, deep underwater, about five kilometers beneath the sea. And the story of how these rare earth elements got there is fascinating. And Gant brought to us from researchers from the University of Tokyo, published in the journal Scientific Reports. Now, a lot of this work was led by lead author assistant professor Junishiro Ota, along with other authors Kazutaka Yoskawa and Tatsuo Nozaki, a large team of collaborators. And this really was studying a certain period in time, the Eocene Epoch. It's roughly halfway between now and the time of the dinosaurs, or more precisely, 34.5 million years ago. Now, there were lots of interesting things happening at that exact moment in time. First off, huge amounts of nutrients started accumulating deep in the ocean. The next important factor is that the planet underwent rapidly a period of cooling, which altered sea currents, which meant that all that nutrients that was in the bottom of the ocean, they all got stirred up. And the seamounts that caused the upwellings of nutrients delivered them all to fish and the higher levels, which thrived as a result. So basically, the changing in the sea currents and all the nutrients that accumulated at the bottom of the oceans got swelled up, which caused fish to thrive. And all these fish, or rather the fossilized remains of these fish, can be found in an area off the Japanese coast called Minami Torishima. 
And in that area, they have a really high amount of these rare earth element deposits. Now, what we do know is that these fish died, of course, and underwent fossilization. And what happened, because there was such a large congregation of fish, and these fish were eating all this sediment that had been brought up and upswelled, it meant that they had accumulated, much in the same way we often talk about pollution getting accumulated through the food chain, fish would also have been eating all these rare metals and accumulating them in their bodies, absorbing what had been otherwise diffuse and scattered throughout the sea, concentrating it inside themselves. So they accumulated them. Then they died and formed a fossil layer. And so now they're all accumulated, trapped inside the fossils of these fish. So billions of years ago, these fish were swimming in this big plume of metals and materials. They chowed down on the things around it and absorbed a lot of those metals. When those fish died and got fossilized, well, all those metals got fossilized and trapped in the one spot with them as well. Now, this is very, very interesting because it means we have a way to identify and hone in on an exact specific location where these rare earth metals are found. Now, previous research had identified the connection between these fish and this large amount of rare earth metals that have been discovered. But how the fossils were formed was an open question until now. So the researchers were looking at the fragments of bones and teeth that they had in the fossil record. Because trying to go through fossilized fish is incredibly difficult. And trying to categorize all those fossils and figure out what was going on there and what fossil you're even looking at when it comes to something small and fish, well, that's a bit tricky. So they compared all the fragments that they had, which is really all they have. They don't have a lot of complete specimens. They just have a lot of fragments. And they compared these fragments against database of fossils with known ages. So they used that along with other dating measures to actually try and identify the exact time period when these fish died out. And by measuring the ratio of certain osseum isotopes in seawater trapped inside the mud, which is encased around these fossils, they could actually identify the exact time period when they died. Now, from this, they can actually pinpoint into the exact time period when they died. Now, that's helpful because there's 35 million year ago time period is very useful because there are many other places where you can find large seamounts or sedimentary deposits all across the Pacific Ocean which have a similar time point as that and that's useful not just for the researchers who want to look at the fossil record but also for those who want to find these rare earth metal periods because the same conditions this shifting in the ocean currents due to the cooling of the planet along with the large presence of nutrients and sediment in the water. These two things were happening all across the Pacific Ocean. And so if you can find other fossilized record periods of the same time, well, you might be able to find other deposits of these rare earth elements. And that gives researchers and meteorologists a way to hunt for more of these deposits. Because if they can target the feet or the base of these large seamounts on the seabird, which are distributed all the way across the Pacific Rim, you could get to more and more of these rare earth element deposits. Now, that's important for two reasons. First, getting more of these rare earth elements helps make sustainable technology more accessible, cheaper, and easier to produce. But also, yes, we have a large deposit discovered at the Minami Torishima site, but that's five kilometers below sea level. And no resource has ever been commercially mined from that deep. But 
If you found another source that was shallower, it just might be easier to produce and get at, and thus help expand the market for this particular mineral. This is some interesting research from the University of Tokyo published in the journal Scientific Reports that outlines just how important developing new technology is and how it relies often on fossil records, rare earth elements, and piecing together what happened millions and millions of years ago to enable us to build cleaner technology today. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From the scales of silicons helping us make smart materials in order to finding more rare earth metal deposits scattered across the globe by looking for sediment trapped with 35 million year old fish. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.